morning. Welcome to the village church. Where our mission is to know Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, and to glorify Jesus. And our vision is broken people coming together to embrace and extend Jesus' love. Um, just for information, our, our pastor, Alex, is on his sabbatical. He's finished up the first month, actually, here this week. So just pray for he and his family. And in his absence, uh, we will welcome Wes Spears again to the pulpit this morning to bring God's words. So we look forward to that. Uh, if you're a guest today, there's information cards out there on the, in the foyer. Uh, please fill that out if you haven't already. Or if you have and you want to be, haven't been contacted, fill it out again, okay? They're there. For, we will make contact with our guests and visitors. That's one way to stay in touch. So if you'd fill that out, please, be helpful. There's a basket there to put them in after you fill them out. Um, as a way of showing love to your neighbor, we do ask that you please wear a mask when moving around the building and when singing. If you've been vaccinated, wearing a mask is optional when you're seated. There's a policy out there on the wall and some handouts. You want to get refreshed on that. But that's, that's our current policy and the moving target of COVID. Um, several announcements this morning, so bear with me. <laughs> Here at the Village Church, we believe that the giving of tithes and offerings is an act of worship. It's not just to fill some time or a time slot or to check off a box. Um, so it's an act of worship. So we have several ways to give. You can give uh, on our, to our Internet, our web page, mail a check here to the address of the church, or you can give in the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary after the service. So as you give, uh, it's giving is from the heart, not just about your pocketbooks. So um, thank you for those who are faithful in giving. Thank you for the Lord who is faithful in using the stewardship he's given us. Okay. Uh, First announcement, corporate prayers will continue on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. here at the church. If you're unable to attend, there's a Zoom meeting. And some email reminders will go out on a flock note uh, before Tuesday, before Wednesday. Okay? Okay, here's the big announcement. For all parents of kids, kindergarten through fifth grade, and people below that age group and above that age group, Okay? Next week, August 1, there's a big meeting. That's how Mary put it, big meeting for village kids, and that's kindergarten to fifth grade. So village kids and their parents or guardians will meet August 1st after the worship service, and Mary Lindblom will share details about the ministry that's going to happen in four weeks, or in for four weeks, on which will start the 22nd of August, okay? So we need... Parents there, kids there, and many volunteers. What we're going to do, what she's going to do with the kids' ministry, and what Lyle's going to do at the same time with the youth ministry is going to require a good number of volunteer helpers. So anybody that's interested in working with, helping with kids, um, there'll be opportunities for crafts, for food, for all kinds of things that I don't know about. Mary will tell you about it next week. So plan on that. Plug in your calendar. It's important to be there if you've got kids in that age group. So that's the big meeting. And if you've got questions, uh, you can email Mary at villagekids at enterthevillage.net for details. Okay, so that's, that's next week. A month from now, on September 26th, 
we have what we call Enter the Village class. That will be starting at 9.15 a.m. for an hour for five weeks. We'll meet in the Annex building. Um, and you must sign up. There's a sheet out in the desk in the foyer for those that want to go through the Enter the Village class. That's a requirement for membership. But if you just want to learn more about the Village Church, that's one way to find out what we're about, uh, what, we're, what we're trying to do, what the Lord is, how the Lord is using us. So if you want to be a part of that class, it's a five-week commitment. Sign up in the foyer. Or you can email Cynthia at enterthevillage.net and tell her your desire to be part of that. Okay. Last announcement. On the table out there also, and you may have gotten this on email. Um, you may have opened your emails. You may not have. I don't know. Um, there's an updated policy. Well, it's not updated. It's a, it's a new policy on COVID relevant to the nursery, village kids, and youth. Okay? So there's a policy on how we're handling the COVID situation in the nursery uh, with youth and the village kids. So if you have any questions on that, bring them to the meeting the big meeting next Sunday, August 1st, after the worship. Any questions? If you have, in the meantime, you can email the elders or calls or whatever. But if you've got questions you want to clarify or whatever on that policy, please bring them to the meeting next next Sunday after worship. And there are copies of the policy for the COVID policy for the church out there also. So there's plenty of paper out there if you want paper. Um, Okay, with all that being said, let's join me, please, in a prayer of preparation. Father, with all these announcements and things going on, we can even grow weary just hearing them. And yet, Father, we're here to worship you today. You brought people here in person, uh, live streaming, to worship you. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Rejoice in the fact that we can be with our brothers and sisters uh, to sing praises to you, to hear your word, to encourage each other, to pray prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession. Thank you that we can do this together as, as a body. And Father, indeed, you've turned our mourning into dancing. You've turned our confusion, our complaining into praise. Uh, you've done all these things in spite of us because you your everlasting love for us, Father. I just pray that you would use this time together to encourage us in your word, by your spirit. Uh, touch our hearts, not just our minds, but our hearts, Father, that we might be uh, more in love with you, more thankful for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time together. Uh, just use each part of the service this morning to prepare us to serve you this coming week, Father, to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we go forth in this place. I guide our time together that our praise will be from the heart. We're not just checking boxes today. We're here to worship you, to praise our everlasting, eternal God who loved us before the foundation of the earth, who's with us, Father, and you call us sons and daughters. We thank you for that. I guide our worship for Jesus' sake and for your glory and with thanksgiving. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue with the song of preparation.
please stand for our call to worship. It's taken from, uh, or it is, the song, uh, the doxology. Please join with me where it reads, congregation. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Aren't you grateful this morning for that mercy and that grace and that pardon? Y'all know sometimes a line will just jump out. I do the slides. I pick the songs. And almost every time there will be a particular line in a song that the Spirit will just go focus. Pardon there was multiplied to me exceedingly and abundantly, right? What a blessing. What great mercy. Please bow for our prayer of praise. Father, we, we do thank you. We, we thank you for your plan, that mighty gulf of sin that you span, sending your son to to die for your enemies. Oh, how good you are, how gracious you are, how merciful you are, how faithful you are, how loving you are. Your tender mercies are new every morning. Your compassions, they fail not. And none of that has anything really to do with us. That's just who you are and the way you love us. You lavish those things on us and more. And we just say thank you. We say thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for continuing to love us in all the ways that we don't know that we need. Because I know I struggle with trying to do this thing by myself. It doesn't quite work. I can can go a little while on fumes, but it doesn't quite work. Lord, we need you. And we thank you for being our Emmanuel, being with us, being with us in the fire, being with us in the valley, being with us in the cool of day. We just thank you. We thank you that your mercies never fail. We, We thank you that you promised to never leave us or forsake us. We thank you for your spirit. We were talking this morning before service how your spirit prays because we don't know what to pray. Thank you for that. There's so many things that we can just say thank you and praise you for. We just have a little time, but oh, in glory, when we dance around that throne and that will just be our job to say thank you to say praise you we praise your name worthy is your name worthy 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 holy 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 is the lamb and we look forward to that but father i just pray for our the remainder of our time today that um, your spirit spirit help us fix our eyes on jesus as we fellowship around um, the hearing of your word so we thank you and we praise you father in jesus name Please be seated. Uh, good morning again, Village Church. 
I was reminded this morning of just how easy it is for us as we live in relationship with others to cause offense. Whether we do that and don't realize we've offended someone, whether it's in our home, a neighbor, where else, or we realize it and we're just at that moment unwilling to repent. Regardless of where we find ourselves on that spectrum, uh, I would ask us to uh, focus on the following passage, uh, directing us to confess our sins from Psalm 107:17. Some were fools through their sinful ways and became, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. Uh, please join in, a sil- in our silent repentance. And now our assurance of pardon from Psalm 107, 19 through 22. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Now we will turn our attention to this morning's passage found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. So again, Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The man said to him, all these I have kept. What what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, what would you, correction, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Then the young man, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. 
Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have, and you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who were first will be last and the last first. Thank you.
Thanksgiving. Uh, Jesus, thank you so very much for gathering us here together this morning. Um, and thank you for the songs of praise that we've been singing to you and to encourage each other. Uh, it's said that if we don't praise you, then the very rocks will cry out. And in their own way, they already do. The mountains that you, that, that seem to us immovable, you can bow low at just a word from you. You created them. Uh, and the trees reaching their boughs up into the heavens. So, uh, everything that we see around us is, a, is a, in a way is whispering or shouting praise. And I thank you for that. Thank you that if we but open our eyes, uh, thank you for opening our eyes to see how creation, how you've made us, how the people around us can point us to you. Thank you for everybody here this morning. Everybody who will uh, watch this service online at some point. I pray for each and every heart, every story that each person represents. Um, if anybody does not know you as their Lord, as their Savior, as their friend or as their King, that you would draw them to, to know you as part of seeing the service or part of being here this morning. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, above all, for sending your son, Jesus, to live and to die and then to rise again. Lord, I thank you so much for this. That's the only reason that we have any hope. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning, y'all. Uh, thank you for letting me back up here this week. Um, I wasn't sure last night if I was going to be up here because my wife uh, was starting to feel we might... We thought we might be going into labor, so that has not happened yet. We're all here, so. Uh, but I really would ask that y'all will be praying for us. Um, the, our baby might come early, so that's awesome. Um, and uh, so we'll see. Uh, now, as I said last week, uh, it's my hope and my prayer that this time uh, helps us all to better know and follow Jesus together. And that's my prayer and hope this morning. Thanks, Dennis, for reading uh, the passage today. Uh, as, as he read, it's Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30. And this passage is a tale of two encounters. And if you've been around church much, grown up in it, or, or just been around for a while, then these are probably pretty familiar passages to you. Uh, the first one's Jesus and the children. Uh, it's where Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And that's the kind of phrase that we'd find cross-stitched on a pillow or put up on a wall somewhere. And then there's also the, the next encounter is the story of the rich young ruler. And it is the contrast between these two encounters that starkly illustrates 
how Jesus' kingdom actually flips everything that we thought we knew upside down. And uh, we see that the kingdom, that our world's perspective is so shattered that the things that we would count as valuable is backward to how God measures things. God's kingdom, it's in God's kingdom, that those who think that they are first will actually be last. And those that we would naturally see as first, will act, or as last, will actually be first. Before we dive into this, I'd like to pray for us one more time. Dear Jesus, thank you for, thank you again for this morning. Um, and I just pray that I would communicate with clarity and love. Speak through me, Holy Spirit, and uh, may the church, this church, be built up and encouraged by these small offerings. So a week ago today, actually, I finished rereading the Harry Potter series. That's my second time reading through it, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I teared up a little bit a few times at the end. It's so good. Uh, yes. Uh, if you have never read Harry Potter, I don't think any less of you, but it is my exhortation for you this week to go read it. Uh, like I said, it's so good. Now, I'm going to give away a few spoilers, if you will, um, but I don't feel too bad about that because it has been out a while. I assume if you were going to read it, you already would have. Uh, um, as those of you who have read it know, in the Harry Potter story, the evil Lord Voldemort is the most powerful dark wizard ever, and he is pursuing essentially immortality and invincibility in his ultimate or in his rise to power. That's his ultimate goal. But in his obsession with strength and power, he overlooks the people and the things that he thinks are weak. Essentially, he overlooks anything that he does not see as a threat or a benefit in his quest. And namely, he overlooks the power of love that is exhibited in self-sacrifice. The idea that someone uh, could give up their life and that be an act of strength is ludicrous to him. Now, Harry Potter's mother, at the beginning of the story, has died defending Harry. And it's in her sacrificial love that, that, that protects Harry and prevents Voldemort from killing him multiple times throughout the, series, or the story. And then in the end, it's Harry's eventual own willingness to die. He has no other hope, but he's willing to die for those that he loves and this actually triumphs over death and defeats Voldemort. Now, whether or not the Harry Potter story is your preference, I think that we all still tend to have some version of such stories that we gravitate towards. Tales of heroics, tales of sacrifice. Uh, but in real life, uh, it seems to me that we all function a lot more like the Dark Lord Voldemort in that we live our lives largely centered on self-preservation uh, or the advancement of our personal influence. Uh, and most relevant to what we're talking about today, using the wrong metrics of what is most important, powerful, or meaningful in life. The things that we would consider weak, petty, failures, uh, God places great value in. And some of the things that we naturally see as most important are potential hindrances to us participating in the kingdom. Jesus is stepping on our toes in this passage, and that's because, just like in the Harry Potter story, that, that that story illustrates the love that conquers death, that leads to true life, is one of self-sacrifice. It is one of surrender and of letting go everything that we might cling to as a savior, savior or a safety net other than Jesus. 
Let's get into that in the first encounter, verses 13 through 15. Then the, I'll read it. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, if you were here, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Lyle preached a fantastic message on Matthew 18. And you'll know that this is not the first time that Jesus has had a similar interaction with children uh, and made a similar point. Verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 18 says, The disciples were having a discussion about who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus called a child to him, set them down in their, in, on his knee in the middle of the disciples, and said, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So even just by looking back a chapter, we see that our point today, that Jesus is measuring greatness differently than we do, it's not a new one. Jesus' whole life and ministry embodies this, and these stories in Matthew 19 are just one more angle from which he's demonstrating it. But despite that it is a recurring message and lesson baked into Jesus' ministry, his disciples still rebuke these children. And this is interesting, this rebuking is the same response that the followers and the crowds around Jesus have uh, in Matthew 20. It's also, the account of it's also Mark 10 with a blind beggar. Mark names him Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus, as we said, was a blind beggar. He persistently, when Jesus was passing by, cried out for Jesus to have mercy on him. But the people following uh, Jesus told him to be quiet, to leave the teacher alone. But Jesus had other ideas. He honored Bartimaeus as persistent, calling it faith, and he healed him. So the disciples, loud, socially insignificant blind men, and from our passage today, children are interruptions. They don't fit the category of who Jesus should prioritize spending his time with. But Jesus welcomes the children, laying his hands on them and blesses them like they ask. But he does more than that. He doesn't just make room for them in his day, stopping the important things that he's He's doing. He takes them, sets them aside, and makes them an example, an archetype of who the kingdom is for. And he didn't have to go that far just to pray for them. Uh, but he turns all the focus on these children for a minute and on their approach to him and says, To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, to the best that you can, let's try to break through the stupor of having heard that so many times. And hear it like we've never heard it before. What? Jesus says it's the children to whom the kingdom belong? That, that's, a, you know, that's a nice sentiment. That children are innocent. That they're trusting. That they're cute. Uh, my own children are particularly cute. But, yes, that's true. Uh, but we think of childlike characteristics as just that. Childlike. Things that are fine when we're young. But when we grow up, when we mature... Uh, that they have no real place in real life. And so wouldn't it be, a better, wouldn't it be better for uh, Jesus to have picked a more mature or attractive representative to put on the kingdom of God poster? Wouldn't it be a better PR move for Jesus to say that the kingdom is also, at least, for those who are savvy, who are successful, who are wise in this life? Uh, maybe those who have proven themselves to be good Christian people or that the people who have done 
great things for God, started a few ministries, written a few books. And it's even more crazy that Jesus says it's the children to whom the kingdom belongs because in his day and time, uh, as best as we know, children were probably viewed on a lower social status ladder than we view them today. Uh, Frankly, some of us today idolize our kids and already think they're the greatest thing. But Jesus is saying, when Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to the children, it's as crazy and attractive as him saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry, blessed are you when people hate you for my sake. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the kingdom, where the last will be first. Now, moving on in our passage, and speaking of better potential candidates for the kingdom, at least from our perspective, uh, let's look at our second encounter. Famously known as the rich young ruler, We don't know much about this dude except that he is wealthy, young, and influential. But just knowing that, he's already an example, another archetype. And he he was a real, live person, just like the children were real, live individuals that really met Jesus. But this guy also functions as an archetype of success in this life. He is in some form uh, what most of us, I think, really want to be. And in practice, some of us are actively pursuing, uh, working towards becoming. And let's not pretend that's not true. Uh, I would say most of us want to be or would like to be relatively rich or at least financially independent. Uh, We all would like to have some control over what we do. We would like to be esteemed by other people, have some respect, and be in some leadership in some form. Um, And also, uh, most of us here, I think we all want to be good. Uh, And don't miss that. Let's not villainize this man. He might be a little naive or a little prideful in his approach, but the scriptures don't really present him in a bad light. He's not an unjust leader who's made his wealth by oppression. That's not who this is. He has not turned his back on God and ethics. He's sought to follow the commandments, and he's really concerned about eternal life. Uh, Maybe to put it in some modern terms, um, he is someone who's got his master's degree, is quickly moving up in his company, and he's a leader in his church. Or maybe he's an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, and he, asks, he gets asked to serve on ministry and nonprofit boards. He's well-liked and respected. In short, he's got his life together, both in a secular, natural understanding of success, but also, to some extent, from a religious one. But he's got this seed of doubt, this question that he brings to Jesus. Verses six, verse 16 and 17, he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, I would like to try to clarify something, to suggest something to us today real quick, that when we read his question, uh, we automatically import onto it an understanding of conversion and heaven so that we basically hear this man asking, what can I do to make sure that I get to heaven? And if that's all he's asking, 
then I think Jesus' answer sounds a little weird and that we have to do some gymnastics to make it sound like Jesus is not saying that you could theoretically earn your way into heaven. But perhaps a, a better or at least a more full way to read the question in light of its cultural context is how do I possess eternal life as in how do I now live that is according to or consistent with having eternal life? Because you see the Jewish notion of life and eternal life, and frankly the, the historical Christian notion as well, is that eternal life is not just a future one day thing after we die. It includes how we live now as being the fruit of being on that trajectory. So in light of that, I think Jesus' answer makes a little more sense. He's not advocating for works-based salvation or legalism here. He, all he's doing is directly answering this man's question by nearly quoting some things that the man should already know from the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And, or Ezekiel 20, verse 11, I gave them my statutes, made, them to, made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Or, as Eugene Peterson interprets this exchange in his Message Bible translation, uh, if you want to enter the life of God, just do what he tells you. So, yeah, amen. Well, while keeping the specific commandments does not earn us eternal life, living by them, that is, obeying God, is how our life should look if we possess eternal life. Now, as we read on, uh, we start to get into this man's issues. And he asks, which commandments? And Jesus gives a list off several key commandments. And then the man, uh, the man says he's kept them, and he asks them this telling question. He says, what do I still lack? Y'all, I think this is the crux of the issue, because he sees eternal life as something to add to his already well-put-together curated life. But Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus' answer blows up that notion because following Jesus is not something that we can add or tag on to our lives. When we follow Jesus, we surrender all of our lives to him for the sake of the gospel. Note that Jesus extends to this man the very same call that he extends to all his disciples, and he's not asking any more of this man than he's asking of any of us who would follow him because his call is just that, follow me. And because he loves this man, he shoots straight with him and says, in order for you to honestly do that, you're going to have to give up some things. Uh, there are some things holding on to you that are obstacles preventing you from really following me. In essence, Jesus is not saying that you can get to heaven by merit. He's saying you can't get to heaven by any other God. As one commentator notes, this young, man, young man's God was his wealth. So that we see that the thing that we would equate with success becomes the very thing keeping him from following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, pastor, pastor about 80 years ago, and was killed during World War II, notes that this man is actually more honest than many of us are 
in that he realizes that following Christ is that wholehearted journey. Uh, from what we're told from the, from the text, the man does not try to rationalize, argue, or spiritualize uh, keeping his wealth and following Jesus. He knows it's a matter, of, a flat matter of obedience or not. He's asked a question. Jesus has given him an answer. This is what you've got to do to realistically follow me. Uh, Bonhoeffer goes on to say some more really uncomfortable things related to this passage, and I want to read a quotation to you. It's a little long, but stick with me. If we heard Jesus say this to us today, we should probably try to argue ourselves out of it like this. It's true that the demand of Jesus is definite enough, but I have to remember that he never expects us to take his commands legalistically. What he really wants is for me to have faith. Jesus may have said, sell your goods, but he meant, don't let your heart be in your goods. I can, I can, I'm glad you all laughed. I can still hold on to my riches, but in a spirit of inner detachment. It is possible to have wealth and the possession of the world's goods and to believe in Jesus so that a man may have these goods as one who has them not. But this is an ultimate possibility. It is by no means the first and simplest This is only possible and right for somebody who has already at some point put into action his single-minded understanding, somebody who thus lives with Christ. Like I said, I'm glad you all laughed, but this hit me hard, and I noticed that we tend to do this. When we hear Jesus' words where they're difficult, challenging, uh, we quickly seek to caveat Jesus to get to the spiritual lesson uh, and don't hear me say that's altogether bad, but we do it in such a way, or it is bad, we do it in such a way that it takes the bite out, effectively rendering Christ's words interesting, but not visibly life-changing. We place obstacles to the most straightforward way of following him. And so while it is po- both popular and true to note that Jesus does not say to everybody to sell all our stuff and give it away in order to follow him, he does say elsewhere that in order to follow him you must lose your life you must take up your cross these things mean he does call us to wholehearted surrender and that that will entail real changes and real sacrifices in our real physical lives when we put faith in jesus which is the only way to be saved the only way for us to truly flourish as people we are saying my whole life is yours jesus even my money even my possessions even my ambitions And Jesus, in rightful ownership and lordship of our life, will have us give up whatever would keep us from following him. In wanting the very best for us, in wanting us to survive the sinking ship of the world, he would have us give up the things that would shackle around us and drag us down with the ship. So in that sense, this story, this passage is much bigger than money. It's not just about money. Uh, anything can be those shackles. Anything can be a God. Anything can be an obstacle. But it wouldn't be quite honest to totally gloss over money specifically because uh, Jesus calls it out in verse 23 and 24, says that it, particularly if you're rich, it's hard to follow him. He says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The thing about wealth is that it gives genuine security. It's just that that security is not salvific. It can't save us, ultimately. Uh, And again, we could replace 
wealth or specifically money with anything. It could be sex, it could be prestige, it could be career, family, uh, usually very good things. Uh, but having things in an abundance, what feels like an abundance, being wealthy in something, quickly lulls us into thinking that we just need a little Jesus sprinkled on top and we don't realize our true bankruptcy. And that's where wealth ceases to be a blessing and becomes a curse. Again, as one commentator said, uh, where the people of his day saw riches, the young man, saw riches as a manifest sign of the blessing of God, Jesus saw wealth as a hindrance to spiritual progress. God's kingdom is upside down. Jesus goes on to say in response to the disciples' astonished questions at this notion that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for his sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In God's kingdom, it's those who have sacrificed everything necessary in order to follow Jesus who actually win. Just like in the Harry Potter story we talked about a few minutes ago, surrender is the only path to victory. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, says, Jesus asks far more than you ever thought, but he offers more than you ever dreamed. In sacrificing what we can count on, what we can see and maneuver, we receive so much more. uh, So much more than we could put into place by our own schemes. Uh, I think that's the meaning in in the, the tail end of the verses we just read, that Jesus promises his disciples uh, that those who follow him will be blessed more than what that they have what that they have had to give up in order to follow him. Uh, for some of us, we really will see material blessings in this life uh, in following Jesus. We all of us who follow him will receive deeper blessings, spiritual ones such as healing, peace, truth, uh, the fruit of the spirit. Uh, but uh, and more than that, we're all grafted even into this in this life. We're grafted into the very family of God, uh, his church. Now might be tempted to look around and be like, that's a bad deal some days. But in Christ, you can never say that you do not belong to a family. You are a child of the Most High King and surrounded by fellow children, bought by Jesus' very own blood. And that is a bond, a power, and a love that is even deeper than biological blood. But more than that, as rightful children of God, Jesus promises an inheritance of ruling and reigning. He talks about that. If you remember God's original words to humanity back in Genesis, it was to subdue and to rule the earth. And we've done a terrible job of that since then. But Jesus is pointing forward to a day when that will be restored and we will live and flourish in fullness and even rule according to true righteousness and justice on this earth. It's what we were made for. And so this is where... We need to have an honest conversation with ourselves and that what are we functionally, truly building our life around? Is it that vision and security and trajectory of the kingdom or is it a personal kingdom for us here and now and we're just trying to add Jesus to our life like an insurance policy? Uh, I was talking to my wife Jess about this, about practically thinking about how to figure out where, I, where we functionally place our trust. And my wife is wise and insightful, if you don't know. And she suggested asking this question as a place to start. 
What is the thing that you assume you are not going to lose or that you cannot lose? I thought that was a good place to start in being honest before God and see where our dependence lies if it's not in Christ. What's the thing we think we can't lose? I can't answer that for you, uh, but I can say that it would literally be better for someone to give up their career, their house, and their retirement and enter the kingdom of heaven than to trick themselves into believing that you can serve God and money or God and career, God and retirement or dream of that, God and self-sufficient security, God and sex, God and your hobby, God and your family. Jesus, like we said, wants all of our life and any portion of our life that we want to keep sectioned off from him to ourselves is no life worth living in the end. The only surefire way to lose your life is to try and save it, to try and hold it tightly in your own hands. Uh, As A.W. Tozer says, only in God's hands is something truly safe. And that's all backwards to the world's economy, the world's perspective. The world says, as I understand it, to tend to yourself, to your security, your needs, your dreams. Protect those, and not everybody will succeed, but it's those who do succeed in those ambitions who are great. But let us remember the children. The children, they don't bring anything to the table. They're not even requesting greatness or life or security from Jesus. They're not looking to add something to their resumes. They come totally open-handed, just content with Jesus' touch and his blessing. They are last in their aims for greatness. And in that, Jesus calls them great. And we can wrap it however we want, make it as nice and Christian as we sound, but an ambition of personal greatness is no entrance to God's kingdom. The way of the kingdom is sacrifice, it's surrender. And it's from the biggest areas of our life, things we've been talking about, and it's down to the daily interactions and relationships and ways we interact with people. And so in closing, I invite all of us today to be honest before God. Uh, For one, if you've never surrendered at all in faith to Jesus, uh, or if there's an area of your life that you haven't done that, I invite you to surrender to Jesus as your King and your Lord today. Uh, We are all actually like children in that none of us bring any merit to the table. But naturally we're blind to this, and then we numb ourselves to it by building personal little kingdoms that will one day come crashing down. Jesus did not tell the young man to metaphorically give up his stuff. He told him literally to sell it, literally to give to the poor. So, brothers and sisters, if there is any hindrance, any obstacle that God is making you aware of today, lay it down in the most simple straightforward way do that prayerfully do it honestly and in community certainly but do it let us lay down all of our lesser gods at the foot of a cross where the only man who was truly good showed us the only way to true life jesus thank you for this morning thank you again for everyone here and i pray that you would show us work in us where we have tried to section off our lives from you where we've said grace can't can't encroach this far in my life this is just for me for whatever reason i'm sure there are examples that i have not mentioned in this sermon but i pray that uh, we would not hold anything back from you and submit it all to you nothing is too dirty too ugly or too great or too dear to not give over to you thank you lord jesus
your name I pray. Amen. Uh, If you would stand and receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace.